iTunes presents Meet the Author. Hello and welcome to iTunes Meet the Author podcast. Today we're chatting with Augustine Burroughs, the best-selling author of Possible Side Effects, Dry, and 2002's Running with Scissors. Burroughs' latest work, A Wolf at the Table, chronicles his heartbreaking attempts as a child to receive affection from his abusive, alcoholic, mentally ill father. Let's listen to an excerpt as Augustine describes a dreamlike sequence in which his father is the predator and he is the prey. Prologue. If my father caught me, he would cut my neck. So I just kept going. Broken sticks and sharp stones gouged my bare feet, but I didn't consider the sensation. A branch whipped across my face. I felt the sting, and for an instant I was fully blind. But I didn't stop. His flashlight sliced into the woods on either side of me. The beam was like a knife, and I didn't want it on my back. He was out there, behind me somewhere in these woods. I dashed to the right through a clutch of young silver birch trees and ran up the embankment, crouching to maintain speed. With his bad knee, he would have trouble with the hill. Lumbering forward, he would need to pause and massage the swollen, throbbing kneecap catch his breath. When I realized the jabbing slash from his flashlight was gone, I worried that he had cut around and was one step ahead of me, that he was already on the hill, climbing it from the other side. What if I reached the top and he was there waiting? I veered back to the path, then crossed it. I wanted to stop and listen, but I couldn't. Fear pressed me forward. My breathing roared in my head as though my ears were beside a gigantic, heaving machine, a bellows stoking some hellish fire. Even though I was wearing only pajamas and had no shoes, I wasn't cold. I wasn't anything at all. I was only a blur. When I stepped on a branch, the rough bark cut into my arch, but I just kept going. The pain exploded in my foot and shot out the top of my head and then was left behind in my wake. I paused finally and watched the trees for slashes of light, but saw none. As my heart settled and my ears became less occupied, I listened and heard nothing but the thready pulse of the night, and I sensed that the hunt was over. Prey knows when it has escaped. Augustine, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, having just finished the book, um, I think it's safe to assume that it was not an easy book to write. Yeah, no, it wasn't. You know, at, at this point, um, uh, Wolf at the Table is my fifth memoir, so I've got an encyclopedia of memoirs, and I, I thought that I knew what to expect when I began writing this, but I didn't. It turned out to be um, a pretty harrowing uh, experience to go back in time and relive um, 
my childhood with my with my sociopath father. So it was um, it was the most physical book I've ever written. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, my, my heart would be pounding and my fingers would be freezing like I was riding outside in the winter. And, um, you know, I was crying at certain points and, and terrified at certain points. And it, all those um, memories were so uh, incredibly vivid and they came back in full force. So it was um, not like any, any book I've ever written. And the tone of it, you know, people who have read me um, tend to sort of pick up my book and smirk. You know, waiting for the for the funny stuff. Yeah, and um, a wolf at the table isn't funny. I mean, it what it has in common, I think, with the other books is that it's um, intense, and it um, it I just lay it all out, you know, bare. But it isn't a funny book. Um, it's a different kind of a different kind of a ride. Why did you decide to write it? Um, you know, this book has been in me all my life. My um, my father, uh, you know, I adored him. As, as a kid and I wanted his approval and I wanted his attention like every kid, you know, and lots of kids have distant fathers and lots of, lots of, um, kids have fathers who, who leave, you know, who leave yeah. mom to raise the kids alone and who, who, um, you know, walk out or otherwise abandon the role of father. Um, but mine, um, rejected me, um, and, and then was a predator. Um, so that, that constant, um, rejection on his part, I think, made me um, made me become a writer. It it made me need to uh, tell my story and to connect with other people. But I was unable to write about him um, while he was living, and not not because I didn't want to, uh, you know, hurt his feelings, because I don't believe that's possible. Um, my father never never uh, read any of my books. So he certainly wouldn't have read this one. So that wasn't a concern. It was that there was some sort of psychological umbilical cord that attached me to him still, even as an adult. And um, it was only after he died when I was expecting to be flooded with this sort of grief and profound feeling of loss and instead encountered just freedom Mm -hmm. and relief. Uh, That's when I started to write it. You know, writing memoirs... um, you know, you, you, you'd like to be able to write them in, in a certain order. Um, but that isn't the case. Just like when you have, when you have children, you know, you want the first child to be the child that sleeps all the way through the night. But you know, the first child is the one with colic and cries 24 hours a day for the first year. And that's kind of how it is with, with memoir. You write the one that you need to write at that time. And after my father died, I had to get it out. It had been inside me all my life and it had to come out. When did you first realize that something was not quite right with your father? I had always known that something was not quite right, even before I was aware that I had known. In other words, my first memories of him were um, just as a shadow, sort of a presence that was somehow vaguely threatening, but at the same time, interesting and mysterious. Um, when I was a little bit older, when I was, you know, five and six and seven, um, he began to, to become uh, very frightening. My father, my father was two people. He was a professor of philosophy. He held a PhD, and he was a, 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 an ethics professor at the University of Massachusetts. 
And he was there for 40-something years. He would eventually head the department. He was esteemed member um, of, of the academic department, and he was a popular teacher. Um, he had his friends for, you know, 40, 45 years. And that was one man, the Southern gentleman professor, the man who opened doors and, and was extremely courteous. But at home, there was another person entirely. And that person was uh, terrifying. He, he was, um, you know, it's, and this was frustrating as a child. I didn't have a broken bone or a cracked rib to show as proof to hold up that I could say, see, this is what my father is, see? Instead, what my father would do is he would, um, he would kill my pet or my pets and, and then act like nothing happened at all and act completely innocent. And um, he would threaten to kill me, you know, he would threaten to come after my parents separated, my mother and I remained in the house and my father uh, moved into a small apartment. And he called me one night, drunk, just so drunk. And he said, son, I've stolen a car, a Mustang, and I'm coming out there to kill you. And I was just alone in this house in the woods and I was terrified, terrified. And I, you know, let go of the phone and the phone smashed against the wall, but there were framed pictures on the wall. So there was glass on the floor and I was stepping in the glass and there was blood and I called the police, didn't know what else to do. And the police went to my father's apartment and my father called me uh, while the police were there. And in a perfectly sober voice, he said, son, is everything okay? Well, why did you, why, why are you upset? Why did you call the police? And there was no alcohol in his voice. And the police officer came on the phone and said, there's no alcohol here. Your father is perfectly sober, you know, son. What, what kind of a prank is this? You know, you're wasting a lot of people's time. And, and that was my father. You know, he was two, two people. You know, my father was, um, I describe him as, as missing something, you know. He was missing some human peace. He, that, 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 that part of us that um, makes us love our children and, and want to die for our children or, or just have empathy for a stranger, you know, in crisis or um, just, just general feelings of, of, you know, compassion. My father didn't have that. He could, he could act it. He could act the role of the compassionate person, but he actually lacked the true emotion of compassion. He was a sociopath. Do you, do you think he was aware of the impact his actions had on you? My father was not aware, no. He, um, he, he, he knew, I think, when I was frightened, and I think it excited him. Hmm. Um, but I knew he also uh, felt he needed to behave. Um, now, now, early on, you know, when I was uh, very, very young, and even, even before I was born, um, my father would do the same, the same games with my mother. He would uh, speak in tongues and carry on and, and have a seizure on the floor, and then he would stand up perfectly sober hmm. and act as if nothing happened. And he would say, Margaret, you're crazy. I did no such thing. Um, he used to sit in the kitchen with a shotgun between his knees 
and he would point the barrel of the shotgun uh, at his forehead right between his eyes, and he would cock it and fire it and cock it and fire it over and over and over. I remember um, my mother My mother had been institutionalized in, in a mental hospital uh, many times, but the first time was in 1971 when I was six years old. And on one of her uh, hospitalizations, I was alone in the house with my father. And, you know, of course, he would turn all the lights off. And I walked into the kitchen, and he was there, and he was smiling. And it was the smile of, um, you know, my father had rotten teeth. They were brown, and, and they had black patches of rot, very dark throat. And he was smiling at me in this way that had nothing to do with joy. It was a, a smile that takes an entire book to describe. And he was sharpening every knife in the house. Hmm. And it was... Um, terrifying. Now, when I talk about it now, you know, you can say, well, what a ridiculous, you know, you are a little boy and your father sharpening the knives. He's taking, you know, he's being efficient. You know, he's taking this time and, and, and getting all the kitchen implements in good shape. Um, what's wrong with having a father sharpen a knife, you poor spoiled thing? But it wasn't like that, you know. My father was sharpening the knives deliberately and musically and he was enjoying it. He knew that it was terrifying me. And um, that's that's my my father. Hmm. You you constantly try to get your father's approval. Uh, did did you ever even get traces of approval from him? No, I didn't. Um, you know, my father would later in life, as an I was as an adult, he would ask me to sign um, books for his colleagues, books that he himself had not read. You know, books that I wrote. Um, and that was as far as it would go. My stepmother would tell me, you know, your father is very proud of you. Um, but I think my father, again, played the role of a proud father. But I, I don't think it, it mattered to him at all. Um, even when he, when he died, when he was on his deathbed, you know, I have an older brother. and My brother figures prominently in the book. Uh, my brother and I were essentially raised by two different people. Um, you know, we have the same parents, but... Uh, my mother and father, when my brother was young, you know, they were they were relatively newly married and they were trying to make it work. So they went on camping trips and they went on hikes. And there are photographs of my brother and my father together sitting on a tractor or sitting in front of a campfire or beside a lake. Um, it, we There is no such picture of, of me and my father. We, we I don't think there's a single picture of us together. Um, I don't think that picture was ever taken. Um... So when, when my father was on his literal deathbed dying, he, he told my brother, um, you know, you are a good boy, you are a good son, you are a good son. And my brother said to him, I don't have any good memories of childhood. And my, my father very generously took him through a catalog of memories and said, well, John Elder, there were... There was, you know, this this incident and this time and this trip and we did this. And my brother ended up feeling... Um, like he'd received a gift from our father, um, as my father recounted, the good times that they did have um, early on. And then my father looked at me, and I could see the decision play across his eyes. I could see the, the realization that my father had absolutely nothing to say to me at all. So he looked at me, and then the lights went out in his eyes, and he looked away. And I knew, well, of course, he's going to say nothing to me. Nothing. And he never did. We never spoke again. He died. And that, that even in death, my father would give me nothing, you know. So the book does not have a hallmark ending, although 
at the very end of the epilogue, um, it, it takes a different note. Uh, towards the conclusion of the book, you, you realize that your father has indeed thought about killing your mother um, as she's taking her daily walks across the bridge. H- how did that realization make you feel? Well, what, what happened is that um, my mother uh, is disabled. She's paralyzed. She had a stroke. And she takes a walk across a bridge every day in her, in her town to you know, strengthen herself, holding on to the balcony. And I had an idea sitting in my apartment drinking. You know, I had, I had um, been very concerned all my life that my father had killed people. I had a, uh, a, a memory of my father and I burying a body together in the woods that I felt had to be a dream, had to be a dream. There couldn't possibly be a memory of my father and I burying a body in the woods. I was tired of thinking of my father as um, someone who may have killed and someone who may have killed again and again and again, someone who may have killed college students. Um, I couldn't stand thinking of him like that. Rather, I needed to think, you know what? He was a nasty guy, but he was no killer. And you got to get over this, you know, you're an adult. So I had this, this sort of idea, you know, uh, reverse psychology. I had a few more drinks and I built up my courage and I thought, I'm going to call him and I'm going to tell him, you know, dad, well, I back up a little bit. My father, after the divorce for 20 some odd years, continued to pay alimony and was very resentful about paying my mother alimony, even though it was a small amount, it, it drove him crazy. So I was, you know, calling him and I was, my plan was that I would say, um, you know, dad, old women fall off bridges every day. For an old woman to fall, it wouldn't be such an odd thing. And I, I knew my father would say, oh, son, that, that, that is just, what, what are you talking about? You know, that is just drunk talk. I hate to see you like this. I'm just going to hang up. But that, that isn't what happened. What happened is my father lowered his voice and he said, well, there are 104 windows that overlook that bridge. So at any given time, how many people do you think could be behind one of those windows, even just passing by it and happen to glance out? And as he's talking, you know, this window count and people, and I'm, I'm thinking he, he didn't hear a word I said. He, he doesn't understand what I'm, what I'm talking about. It really took uh, a, f- a, few, a few moments for... Uh, what he was saying to sink in. And I realized, oh, so he's already thought of this. And he's he's counted the windows and he's worked out the visual trajectory and he's sort of analyzed all of this. Um, and it was a profound realization. And what it did is it confirmed everything that had happened before and it made me see... No, I was right about him all along. It was it was one of the very few times my father's mask was completely unzipped. And I have no idea why he let that out because he was so controlled and so um, premeditated that it, it was out of character for him to be that loose and that relaxed to admit such a thing. It was a terrifying and um, profoundly uh, awakening moment. Did you feel relief when you when you uh, realized that? I did. Um, I felt relief. I felt uh, relief in a number of ways. I felt relief that my mother was still alive, that he had not, in fact, done this. 
I felt relief that in the end I wasn't crazy, that, that all those thoughts I had and decisions I had come to about my father as a child were not childish, uh, imaginative fantasies, that they were true, that I was right. Um, so there was relief in that. There was also um, just a, a stainless steel kind of horror at what he is, what he was. You know, I realized at that moment, my father's not a man, he's a thing. Let's go ahead and listen to this scene where you realize that your father has indeed considered killing your mother. I picked up the phone again. Right away, he asked about the weather in New York. Never all that much different from the weather in Western Massachusetts. I told him about the weather in New York. And then I told him about a new AT&T commercial that I would soon have on the air. Watch for glowing red ears, I said, adding, it's really not very good, but that's their fault, not mine. He said he'd look for it. And then I said, you know, my mother takes a walk on that bridge behind her apartment every night. She goes out there alone. My mother lived beside the footbridge that spanned the river in her town. She walked the bridge to maintain her strength. She walked the bridge alone at night. She loved the river beneath it, the roiling waterfall just beyond. Many of her later poems were about this bridge, the river, the leaves of the trees along the bank changing colors through the seasons. I said, my voice lowered to a confidential whisper, you know, you could be on that bridge one night when she's out for her walk. Old people fall every day. What would be so unusual about an old paralyzed lady falling off the bridge and into the water. Unexpectedly, I must repress a laugh at my outlandish suggestion. Why don't you kill her? And I prepared myself for the exasperated tone of voice he would adopt, the same tone of voice he used with me when I was a boy. Oh, for crying out loud. I waited, but there was only the sound of his breathing. Fast, steady, like an animal or a masturbator. And then he spoke in a soft, uncommonly low voice, as though taking care not to be overheard. Well, there are 16 buildings on either side of that river clustered there just near the bridge. Now altogether, those 16 buildings, and again, these are only the buildings directly on the water. There are more houses in the hills beyond, as well as further upstream, so like I said, those 16 buildings have a total of 104 windows. Now, any one of those 104 windows could conceivably have a direct view of that very bridge and the water below it, so. At eight o'clock at night, when your mother generally takes her walk, how many people might be glancing out the window 
just a glance. That's all it would take. Impossible to say. At first, I was completely perplexed and said nothing at all. Numbers, figures were echoing in my head. What was he talking about? 104 windows? I thought, he's misunderstood me. He wasn't even paying attention to what I was saying. He's talking about buildings and windows. But by the time I took my next breath, I understood what he had said. First, I felt like I have before in dreams when falling. It was a plunging sensation, purely physical, the bottom of me dropping away, and an undulating nausea overtook me. Immediately, I wanted to deny what I have heard. I wanted to go back in time just 10 minutes and change my mind about making this phone call. I wanted this to be untrue. And I had to say something just to stall for time. Well, yeah, it's just not something you'd want to do anyway, I said dismissively. Okay, son, well, I have to go now. It's getting late, and these phone calls are expensive. His tone of voice was as if we'd discussed the weather, my new commercial, nothing more at all. I then became sober. I had been drunk when I called him, but now I was not drunk. I was utterly sober. And I sat in my chair, my computer before me, and I stared at the bright screen, and I was overwhelmed with the desire to sleep. Delicately, I began to perform an autopsy on the conversation we'd just had. I needed to break it down line by line and discover where, precisely, I had misunderstood him. I needed to analyze his words, understand what he had truly been saying. My insane trick to get him to say what I wanted had obviously infected and warped my understanding of what he meant. I lit a cigarette and inhaled the smoke deep into my lungs. So, the first question would be, why would my father know how many buildings overlooked the bridge and the river beneath it? How or why would he know the exact number of windows? In order to know these figures, one would have to count. One would have to stand on the bridge and look out at the houses on either side of the banks. And then one would have to count patiently, carefully. One would write the figure in a small notebook, which, as it happened, was something he always carried with him in his pocket. A small notebook all his life. We're back with Augustin Burroughs, whose new memoir, A Wolf at the Table, describes his broken relationship with his father and the profound effect it had on his childhood. Augustine, the, this audiobook is, is quite unique. It has both a score and original music. Um, I wouldn't say you read it, uh, you perform it. What were you trying to accomplish with the audiobook? Well, the book itself was so unlike anything I'd ever read that the very first thing I knew is that I can't read this like I've read my other audiobooks. Um, 
because as soon as the listener hears my voice, they're going to be waiting for the sort of punchline. So I, um, I knew I have to use sort of a lower, calmer, slower voice. I had to, um, I had to really slow the pace down. But what I, what I wanted was, um, I wanted a richer experience. You know, an audio book is an author reading for eight hours and there's a little music in the beginning and there's a little music at the end and it's, you know, that's it. There you go. I wanted an audiobook for the iPod generation. I wanted an audiobook for people who are flooded with visual images. I wanted an audiobook that even though, you know, it's playing through your ears, you're seeing it all happen before you. Um, so I wanted, a, I wanted to score it like a motion picture and I wanted to do a sound design, um, but most most important, I wanted um, I wanted music. I wanted I wanted I wanted some you know artists to to write original songs based on the book and um, and incorporate these into the audiobook. I wanted it to be overpowering, you know. Not no no overpowering is the wrong word. I wanted it to be incredibly fulfilling and stimulating and just to, to, to uh, penetrate all sides of your brain at once. I mean, I didn't want to do another audiobook. You know, the, the last innovation in the audiobook category was using celebrity voiceovers. And, I mean, I'm guessing that happened a dozen years ago. Other than that, there's been no change. You know, there's... No, one's, no one seems to have done any, anything fresh. Um, so my own performance was another element. I really had to like you said, perform, you know, act these roles. Um, I had to be my young Augustine. I had to be my mother, but I had to be her in a way that wouldn't be suggestive of the mother in Running With Scissors um, because she was a different person then. You know, my mother was about to go crazy, so she was fragile and she was breaking, but she was also loving and tender in A Wolf at the Table. In Running With Scissors, she was already over the top. I had to get my father, um, I had to get my uncle with his deep, deep, you know, uh, deep southern drawl. Um, and I remember being anxious because I'm not an actor. So I asked an actor friend after my first day of recording. It was grueling and incredibly physical. And I said, I don't know if this is working. I feel like, you know, it's it, it could be really horrible. And she said to me, um, when you were recording were you uh, thinking about your performance? And I said, no. I mean, I was completely lost in, in, in the book. I mean, I was just right there in every word. And she said, then that's exactly right. You did it right. So um, to get back to the music, I, uh, I, wanted, I wanted to know if we could get some rock stars, you know, to, uh, to do some tracks. And um, I, I thought, you know, let's contact him and say, would you read my book, and if you like it, would you write me a piece of music and then uh, perform it and let me have it for my book? And um, four said yes. So we have uh, Patti Smith. Um, she wrote a song called The Only Time with her daughter, and she performs it. We have Ingrid Michaelson, uh, and her song is Spare Change. Seawolf wrote an amazing song called Song of the Magpie. And then Tegan Quinn of um, Tegan and Sarah wrote a song called His Love. And, I mean, it was just an incredible experience because the songs all came in at different times. Uh, Tegan's came in first, and then there was another song, you know, a week or two later, and then another song, and then another song. And each one was just 
overwhelming emotionally um, to have these artists that I mean I'm a fan of each of these people a huge fan and and it, just that they that they that they did this and that they wrote me these songs about my book I mean it's it's the kind of thing that I'm not going to really be able to get through my head till I'm 60 that it really happened and as a result it just pushed the audiobook to a completely different level yeah, they really are great songs, and you now have half your soundtrack for the movie when this when this hits the big screen. Yeah, I hope so, exactly. From A Wolf at the Table audiobook, here's Ingrid Michaelson's Spare Change. Aching, longing, save all your hands for me. Cause I won't share them with anything anyone knows I grew from you, branches from a dying tree But I could say Augustine, thanks a lot for your time and, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. 